Let's pray together. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for this good day. And we thank you for a chance to worship in this place. We're reminded, Lord, that you are good. And that you work in our life first. And Lord, when we say we love you, we say we love you because you first loved us. And you demonstrated your love for us in the most beautiful and unique ways. We thank you for the life that you have offered us in Christ. And Lord, today as we worship you, we pray that we would be reminded of the depth of that grace. And Lord, we ask you to teach us something fresh today, something that would make us hunger to be more like Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would trust you and have faith in you and ask you to strengthen us in ways that we need you to. Lord, we thank you for your word. As we open it together today, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be tender, that that we would receive your truth like a seed planted in fertile soil. God, we pray that you would make our hands strong, that our work in this world would be like your very own. And Lord, we pray that a word of testimony and hope would be found on our tongues. God, this is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus. And we pray together saying, Amen and Amen. Please be seated. Friends, thank you for your good attitudes. This is quite a unique arrangement for us today. But it'll be our new home for a while. So I appreciate you coming in and being part. It's so great to see you guys up there on the left. If, if the wave gets started today, they will start it. Uh, so it's good to see you up there. Thank you so much. Years ago, there was a singer named John Prine, and he wrote a song called Grandpa Was a Carpenter. How many of you know that song? Uh, it it uh, won in the back. What's wrong with you people? You need some culture. Uh, it starts out like this. Grandpa was a carpenter. He built houses, stores, and banks. He chain-smoked camel cigarettes and hammered nails and planks. He would level on the level, shave even every door. He voted for Eisenhower because Lincoln won the war. The first time I heard that song, I actually thought it was about my own grandfather uh, because John Prine got those details right down to the brand of cigarettes that my granddaddy quit smoking when I was about eight years old. My grandfather indeed was a carpenter, and his father was a carpenter. My father was a carpenter and contractor. I grew up around builders. And I grew up around builders uh, who were kind of in charge of big projects. And I saw the, the joy and the stress and the ecstasy and the agony on their faces uh, as they would take something from nothing uh, and make it something beautiful. Or they would take something that needed a lot of attention and, and, and make it fresh again. I grew up around the big projects and I learned so many of the life lessons uh, by going with my father and my grandfather from one job site, one project site to the next. I learned all the big stuff uh, riding around in the cab of the truck. Every now and then we'd have to move a big piece of heavy machinery down one of the back roads uh, in Lauderdale County, Mississippi. I remember standing on, on one of these big pieces of machinery, driving down the road as my dad was driving, uh, and a car convertible of beautiful women uh, drove up right next to us. It was like a scene from National Lampoon's Vacation. 
uh, and we just sort of gave them that, that two-finger Mississippi finger wave, and we kept on going down the road uh, as they passed us uh, on the left. Uh, I grew up around the big project. And we are in the midst, very literally, as a church family, uh, we're in the midst uh, of a big project. This is not worship as normal. This is unique. I'm standing literally on the platform of a job trailer. So today I'm preaching from construction equipment because we're in the midst of a big project. And just like me as a child learning lessons, being part of the big project, I think it would be important for us. I think we would waste a moment if we didn't go back into the pages of Scripture and relearn the lessons uh, that God would have all of his people learn from that great big project in the first covenant in the Old Testament. Of course, I'm talking about the building uh, of Solomon's temple. That project was so big and so significant for God's people that it was used again and again in the New Testament to teach important truths about life with God. Jesus would say, you tear the temple down and I'll rebuild it again in three days. They all knew the story of the massive effort that it took to build the temple. They all knew the provision it took and the people involved. They, they all knew where it was located and the importance and significance of that. They knew about the temple. And he said, you tear it down and I'll build it again in three days. Of course, he was talking about his own resurrection and the life that he would offer by becoming victorious over death, hell, and the grave. The apostles wrote about the temple, and they would write about how we individually as followers of Jesus and collectively as followers of Jesus are temples of the Holy Spirit, the very dwelling place of God, and that God works with us in the building up of his temple. There's so many beautiful lessons in Scripture connected to this big project. The source material for all of this is 1 Chronicles 17, uh, 17 to 29. Some of the other passages that are important are 1 Kings 5 to 6, 2 Kings 2 to 7. I would encourage you over the next several weeks to read that material together. We certainly don't have time to go verse by verse through all of that source material. If we did, it would take us all the way to February. And if we chose to do that, you would be angry with me because that would foul up Advent and Christmas. And one thing I've learned as a pastor is don't mess up Christmas. So we'll dedicate a handful of weeks to this, focusing on some of the big themes that emerge, some of the big principles. For instance, we'll look today at the importance of promise, of living with and working alongside a God of promise. We'll look at the importance of place. We'll look at the value of personnel and what that means for building alongside God. And we'll look at the all-important uh, principle of provision, those things that God provides to do the work that he calls us to do. Did you get those? Did you write them down? I don't always alliterate, but when I do, it's always brought to you by the letter P. <laughs> so today we start with the principle of the promise. Our focal text is chapter 17, uh, verses 1 to 15, uh, as we read together the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. Then Nathan said to David, 
Do all that is within your heart, for God is with you. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't have the opportunity nor the privilege to build our lives strictly on our own terms. We build alongside a God of promise. We believe as we confess our faith that God is real, that God is personal, that God opens himself up to a personal relationship with anyone that would follow after him, and that God interacts actively in our lives, that God has a vested interest in us, and that God wants to do things with us and through us, that God is a God who speaks and calls forth, commands, confess, all this stuff. We believe in a God of promise. And what we learn from this text of Scripture is that there are some principles that are important when we go ahead and admit that we live our life in league and with a living God, a God that is alive. And the first principle that I would point out today, if you have your number two lead pencil, I heard Todd tried to dog on the lead pencils. I hope you didn't let that get to you. If you have your number two lead pencil, the first principle is that if we are going to build our lives, if we're going to build in concert with a God of promise, we must be people of initiative. In these first few verses, we see this, this idea of initiative fleshed out. David, earlier in the, in, the, in the text, he had consolidated power in Israel. He had brought the seat of authority to Jerusalem. This was brilliant both politically and tactically. Uh, Jerusalem was on the border of, of open territory, so it reduced uh, anxiety among the people of, of Israel. And it was on a hill, so it was, it was tactically more defensible. He brought it all there, and he began to build. He began to build. Inside the city, uh, he built this walled sort of green zone that was called the city of David. And within the city of David, he built houses, houses to live in, houses made of choice material, houses made of, of cedar, Lebanese cedar. And, and David, he, he had done all of this work, and God had been with him. God had smiled on him. God had blessed it. Over and over and over again, he saw an opportunity, and he walked through the door of that opportunity. And, and God seemed to be saying, yes, 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 yes. And he came to the place where he was dwelling in this fancy new house with cedar walls. And he was smelling that fresh cedar shipped in from the mountains of Lebanon. And he looked over and he saw the Ark of the Covenant, the very symbol of God's presence. And that Ark was being housed in a tent. A tent. And David said, my house is like this. And the storage facility, the house for the covenant, is like that. And he said, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem right. And friends, when you, when you go through your homes and you go through your businesses, and they all look fantastic, top shelf, top of the line, and the place where you worship God uh, looks like it's falling down, it doesn't communicate that we are humble people and we don't care about material things. And David was in that spot where he recognized that the dwelling place for the leadership of Israel looks great. And the seat of our worship life looks bad. 
He said, somebody must do something about that. And he recognized that that somebody was him. And he said, this is what I'm going to do. We're going to do something about this. And Nathan, who would speak so honestly to David, Nathan, who could, who could just speak truth to power better than anybody else possibly in the history of the world, looked at David and he said, you do what's in your heart. You do what's in your mind because God is with you. This is an example of the beauty of initiative. God would have us all have a little of that in our heart. A little bit that says, hey, there doesn't seem right how we're doing this. We could do something better. We could do something different. I think there's an opportunity here. We should run after it. This is how David had been operating, and this is what God had been smiling on, and he saw one more opportunity, and he said, uh, we're going to seize it. This example of initiative is in a section of Scripture that smiles on examples of initiative. If you go back to the 11th chapter, there's this oddball story about a relatively unknown biblical character named Benaniah. And, and this was a valiant man. He was a strong man. And, and it talks about his deeds. It says, he killed two lion-like heroes from Moab. Meaning in defense of his people, he took on and double-teamed uh, these two guys from Moab. It says, he also gone and he killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian man with great height, five cubits tall. In the Egyptian hand was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaniah did, and he won a name among the mighty men. And David appointed him over all of his guard. And later Solomon would put him in charge of all of his army. So this is the guy who became the secret service leader for David. And on his resume was this, this scene. It says, he went into a pit on a snowy day and he killed a lion. Mark Batterson, Assemblies of God pastor, wrote a beautiful book, challenging book on Christian leadership, and he titled the name of that book, he titled that book, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. This is an odd scenario, but he sees this lion and all the challenge that a lion would, 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 would pose to God's people. It would eat all the, all the stock, all the livestock. It would challenge the children. It would be a menace. And he looked at that lion on this snowy afternoon and he said, no. And he chased it down and he went in that slippery, wet pit and he killed that lion. And that got on his resume and he became the, the one to the protect the king. Because if you'll fight a lion in a pit on a snowy day, you can be trusted with the safety of the king. I have never met a lion but I can just imagine a lion being very intimidating. We have tried since we've come to this church to, to know in some measure the former pastors. I've done a wedding or two with Scott Walker. We, we had dinner over at John and Pat's one night. And John Wood has a huge stuffed lion in his house. Some of you have seen this lion. My kids were little. I mean, this was years ago when we, when we first went over there. Uh, Wes went in and saw the lion and thought, Cool. Molly went in and saw the lion and started weeping. That's what a sane person does in the presence of a lion. You just, you just quake and you cry. 
But here's this wild biblical example of initiative. Here is this person who sees a line, and in order to protect the weak and the, and the stock and the food lines, to protect the people, he chases down the lion and is given increased responsibility among God's people. Friends, we can, we can sit around on our sofa and say, God, do something significant with my life and wait. And we can wait and wait and wait and wait until one day we meet a living God and that living God says, hey, sport, what'd you do with that life I gave you? God certainly wants us to be people of trust and faith and prayer. But he also wants us to be people of a sanctified initiative. And I know what you're thinking. Well, what if I make a raging mess of it all? You ready for point number two? If you're going to build with a God of promise, you must be a person of initiative, but also a person of great reverence. If you look in verse 3, you'll find that the first word is what? Somebody shout it out. But. Do you see that in your Bibles? But. One of these days I'll convince you that's a very important biblical word. It comes from an old Hebrew word that means, well, but. It said, but it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord God, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I've not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. Wherever I have moved about with all of Israel, I have even spoken a word to any of the judges. Have I ever said to them, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? This is it. When you're dealing with the living God, he can get in your business. And if you're going to have faith and trust in a living God, you have to have the kind of faith and trust that says, I'm going to do the very next thing ahead of me with zeal and with passion, knowing that God can get in the middle of all of that and redirect for his glory and for my good. That night, as Nathan went to sleep, God woke him up and God spoke to him. And he said, you go talk to that king. And this is what you say to him. Have I ever complained about this? No. Tell him no. Tell him no. In other passages of scripture, he gives an example and the reason why. But here he just says, tell him no. I hadn't been whining about this. Tell him no. And David will give us a great example of how to respond to a no from God. He doesn't pout and he doesn't salt, but he comes before this no with great reverence. Because David had come to this point, uh, and he'll learn again and again. He makes massive failures in his life, but he also gives us wonderful examples of how to live humbly and openly before God. He does that well many times, too. And here we have one who is being shaped and molded by God. And in the face of this great no, he offers a heart back to God that is reverent and accepting. 
You see, friends, if we're going to build with God, it's not just about our initiative. It's not just about our ability or our thoughts or our ideas or our notions. It's all of that, and we steward that, and God gives that to us, and we're to give that back to him as an offering. But it's also recognizing that God is alive and not a concept. That God is as real as your breath. And that God wants to get you where he wants to get you more than you want to get to where you want to get. It's knowing that to follow the will of God is not to try to break some code or crack some code or to follow some syllogism. It's to walk in relationship with a living God, reverently with that God, trusting that he is at work in your life to move you from where you are to where he would have you to be. And walking with a God like that, there are many times where he says yes and go for it and here's all the strength and provision and personnel you need. And then there are moments where he says no. And in those moments, as well as in those great yes moments, we have to bow humbly before God and bless him and give him thanks. When we live as people of reverence, we live as people who recognize that there is one God, and I'm not that God. There is one God, and that God is to be trusted with our lives. There is one God, and our ultimate allegiance, everything we do, all the little scraps of our lives, must be brought back around and offered back to Him, because that is life with the God of promise. After World War II, Elton Trueblood wrote a, a little book. He was always writing books. Quaker philosopher. Uh, I've been so influenced by his thought and, and his clarity and his passion. And the little book he wrote was called Foundations for Reconstruction. It, it, was, a positive, it was a positive take on the, on the Ten Commandments. It, it was taking the commandments of God and giving these positive imperatives. Uh, and he said, it all starts with the first one, where we have no gods but God. And we recognize his, his ultimacy and his lordship. And we live as people of reverence before him. Listen to what he says. He says, a deep sense of the priority of the first commandment, to honor God as God, would change all men fortunate enough to share it. It would make us humble. And it would make us brave. It is the first stone and the foundation upon which we must try to rebuild the shattered house, which is man's home. Sin individually and collective has shattered the home that we live in, shattered our lives, and shattered our world. And God would have us participate with him in the rebuilding of our lives and the rebuilding of this world. And the first stone and the foundation of that great, big project, the only project worthy of our lives, is the stone of reverence. And when we revere God, the God of yes and the God of no, then we become humble and brave. And it takes a miracle to put those two things together. But when Jesus' heart beat on this earth, it was a heart that beat with humility and bravery. And if we will follow him, we will be people of humility and bravery who recognize there is one God. One God. So if we are to build with a God of promise, we build with initiative. 
and we build with reverence. And finally, beginning in, in verse 7, it's going to require some adaptability. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously." Since the time that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, also I will subdue all your enemies. Furthermore, I will tell you that the Lord will build you a house. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you who will be your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will uh, not take my mercy away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. He said, okay, tell him no. And then tell him this. He said, tell him I took him from the sheepfold. One of my favorite books on leadership was written by Heifetz, Leadership Without Easy Answers. I think we're living under the tyranny of the great simplifiers. These great complex problems, well, just do this and it's all settled. We had this great project before us and God comes uh, without easy answers and he says, this, this is how we're going we're gonna to rebuild the world. He said, tell him no, but then tell him, I'm going to take him, going to take him and do something. He said, look, tell him to look back, back in his life. He said, I'm the one who came down to the sheepfold that day. And I said, I'm, I want a king. They, they brought all those beautiful brothers out, all those big, strong, top of the line, handsome guys. And one by one, they were all, they were all sent away back to the ranch. Then, then my, my prophet, tell, don't tell, him, tell him to remember the prophet. He said, isn't there anybody else? He said, well, there's that little ruddy kid brother back there. Go get him. Go get him. They went and got the run of the litter who could play a harp and sling rocks at bears and lions. They said, go get the underdog and bring him forward. He said, I brought you out, David. Look back over your life. I was the God of grace in your past. I'm the one that brought you out. And look at your current situation. And from this moment to that, I'm the one that's always been with you. Tell him no, but tell him I've always been with him all along the way, even to this moment right now. Tell him no, but remind him where he's come from and, and, and who I've been in his life. Tell him no, but tell him this. And then tell him, after you've told him no, tell him, oh, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. You see, at the beginning of this great project, the biggest project in the Old Testament, before God's people could say to God, you're lucky to have us. We're your little dutiful helpers. God says to that, no. I'm doing something for you. 
We serve a God of abundant grace. He doesn't need any of us, but he loves every one of us. And he loves us so much that he wants our lives to matter, and he wants us to have purpose and passion, and he wants to involve every single last one of us with what he does in the world. And guys, it'd be a whole lot more efficient if he decided not to do it that way. We slow everything down and mess up a lot of stuff, but God loves us so much that he wants us to be part of it, and he invites us to be part of it. And he says, I want to do something for you first. He said, I'll build you a house. And this is a twofold kind of promise. One, one is to be lived out in, in almost the immediacy. As he says, your son, your son will build this temple. And David adjusts, and he's adaptable, and he begins to be the chief cheerleader and supporter of the, the project that Solomon would get credit for. We don't speak of David's temple. We speak of Solomon's temple. And David, he stepped aside and became a supporter of that project. So one part of this, one part of this is fulfilled in Solomon. But another, as I read the Bible canonically, as I read the Bible as a Christian, is fulfilled in the life of Jesus the Messiah. Do you remember around Christmas time where we talk about them going to the city of David for their census and their accounting and all of that stuff? It was important that the one that would bring hope to all the world and salvation would be from the line of David. That he would be of the house and the lineage of David. And when you open the Gospel of Matthew up and you read the genealogy in, in, in Matthew, you, you read about David. You said, David, the king, begot Solomon, by whom uh, had been the wife of who? Uriah. Who? David's worst, most notable sin winds up in the Christmas story. We dress our kids up in bathrobes and turn them into shepherds. And so we don't read this around Christmas, but it's right here in the Bible. Solomon. And then on down from Solomon, you have Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. I'll build you a house. You see, God can take the ugliest stuff of our life our shameful moments, our failures. He can take our successes and our victories, take all of that, and like a wonderful artist, put together a mosaic that is absolutely exquisite. You see, God wants to rebuild all of our lives. He wants to rebuild us collectively. He wants to rebuild our shattered home and our shattered homes. Guys, if you don't know a God of promise, a real living God, a God who's not a concept, but a God who has come to us in the person of Christ to give his life that we could have life, you can. And that very real God can put your life together. That very real God can rebuild, beginning at the foundation, the shattered home that you live in. That can start today. In a moment when we sing, I'll stand right there on the edge of the, the plywood and the carpet. 
he can come and say, Matt, I don't really understand all of what you're talking about, but I, I got just this sort of crazy life, and I don't know this God you're talking about. Would you help me? Absolutely, to the best of my ability, and by God's grace, I can start to help you. And we can start to help you. We're not a bunch of people that's got it all together here. That's blatantly obvious. Look around. But quite a few of us know the grace of a God that's good. That's building the house that we call our lives. Well, maybe you're here and you have confessed this Savior and you do know him. But you've just sort of hunkered down and you're letting the lines run loose all around your life and wreak havoc. Maybe you're comfortable with the crumbly place for the Ark of the Covenant while you're comfortable in walls of cedar. Maybe it's time to get up. Maybe it's time to bow down. God, the God of promise, as he builds in our life, he builds through initiative and reverence and adaptability. After Nathan delivered this message, the prayer began, and I want you to go home and read it. It's the rest of the chapter. It says that David sat before the Lord. And David gave him thanks. And David agreed with him. He said, let everything that you've said come, come to be in my life. And just like Jesus would say, not my will, but yours be done. Just like Mary would say, be it unto to me according to your will. David said, let all this happen to me. Then he got up and he did something. Today, friends, in this room, as we stand, what I want you to do is just in your heart imagine that you're sitting before the Lord. And as we sing, humble yourself. And as we sing, confess, let it be in my life according to your will, you living God of promise. And when you leave here, let it be an intentional act of worship, leaving to do something for his glory and your good. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for these sweet friends, and I thank you for the chance to worship in this place with them, Lord. And as we stand and sing today, Lord, I pray that we would, we would recommit ourselves to you in your way. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would have the courage to just to begin that journey today. Lord, as we confess you fresh, as, as we accept you and, and walk with you. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. Choir David, lead us.